You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new centerfire rifle ammunition, Terminal Ascent. Now, the Terminal Ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The Terminal Ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet and it comes in a variety of cartridges including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06 and the 300 Win Mag. If you want to find more information about the Terminal Ascent, visit federalpremium.com and while you're there, check out It's Federal Season, the official podcast of Federal Ammunition. On today's episode, we're going to be going over the Iowa hunt recap. And this particular Iowa hunt wasn't your kind of standard out-of-state three points, four points to apply, get a bow tag, and hunt during the rut type of a hunt that probably a lot of non-resident Iowa hunters are more familiar with hearing stories from. This is more so the easier-to-draw-tag general shotgun hunt that is going to have a lot more hunting pressure, uh, maybe not quite similar to what you might be used to in like a Michigan or Wisconsin, etc., but more hunting pressure than what you would expect during, say, the rut, during archery season. And also just a little bit different strategy-wise and a little bit different expectation-wise. So we'll get into that as well as also some just general thoughts on uh, some clothing system things that I tried uh, during this particular hunt, given that it would be a you know large mileage, big hill type of a hunt. Uh, so i give my thoughts on that as well. As most of you know, I've been using Onyx for several years for e-scouting and waypoint management. In the field or at home, I can browse aerials and topos, map my routes, draw lines and waypoints, color code points of interest, geotag photos of rubs, or even what a specific tree I intend on hunting looks like, so that I can find it in the dark, say for example. Furthermore, I can download maps for offline use, and of course browse public and private land boundaries. Use the code DIY for a discount on an Onyx Hunt membership. So for starters, a good question is why? I've talked a few times on the podcast before about how I thought Iowa in general was kind of a, a hard value just because of how expensive the tag is. You can go on an over-the-counter elk hunt for roughly the same price as a non-resident Iowa tag, especially if you're applying for points and doing the archery thing. So what's the point of doing, especially maybe a lower odds shotgun hunt that you only have a couple days for? And really what it came down to for me is for Iowa, you either are investing a lot of time into, you know, scouting hopefully and a large portion of your rut to just try and fill that one tag and their shotgun season being in December, which is obviously much later than most States firearm season gives kind of a unique opportunity to at least hunt the state, but also leave your options open for the rest of the rut. And 
given that I had a pretty busy rut schedule this year, this gave me an opportunity to sort of get my feet wet and just kind of get a lay of the land, be able to put some boots on the ground and get an Iowa hunting experience in and be able to share those thoughts with you and hopefully get a successful outcome of the hunt and be able to put a tag on something. In the future, I may or may not do the shotgun hunt again, and I'll discuss, I guess, why and what my thought process is behind there. But, but really for the purposes of this hunt, it was, I really wanted to just, you know, give my effort for as many days as I'd be able to hunt during the shotgun tag, uh, regardless of how expensive the tag was going to be and see if I could make something happen for the application process. It was pretty easy. I just looked at their statistics and in most of the zones in Iowa for a non-resident, you can either get a gun tag with zero or one points. Uh, they'll oftentimes have just kind of a percentage. And I don't know that the zone that I was in was necessarily a hundred percent draw odds with zero points. I don't think it was, but it was a very high probability and I ended up drawing it. So in other words, if you want to hunt Iowa and you want to hunt it pretty frequently and you don't want to have to wait forever, doing one of the firearms seasons is a, a pretty good opportunity to be able to do that. And you're also able to save your rut. You can apply for either the first shotgun the second shotgun or late muzzleloader. The timing is a little bit different on those. I believe the shortest of those seasons is the first shotgun. It's a five-day hunt spanning from, you know, Saturday to a Wednesday. And I chose shotgun one because I was expecting it to have the most amount of pressure. And my strategy on this hunt, especially with very little, actually zero boots on the ground experience in that land prior, was to try and to be able to use other hunter pressure, both public and private, to my advantage first shotgun was going to seemingly give me the best opportunity to do that. And so that's why I chose the first shotgun. So in terms of e-scouting, what I really was trying to look for here is areas where number one, they might have a lot of cover. Number two, where there might be good travel corridors leading from areas of normal deer bedding to areas of more secure cover. And also just kind of trying to get a general context of where most of the hunter pressure was likely going to be coming from. So I can kind of see if there's certain directions or areas where deer might get pushed to. It's a little bit different than firearm hunting around home because in a lot of the bigger track stuff around me, and especially when you have big habitat features like swamps or marshes or things like that, you're able to pick spots on the map and say, this is most likely sort of the last frontier. If deer are going to get pushed, they're going to get pressured and they're going to get pushed back into this area. And that's likely the end of the line. Like they're not going to want to, or need to go any further than that. And it's, you know, might be the furthest place away from uh, any of the hunter access and you can't get to it from any other way. Whereas by contrast, a lot of the public land here in the Iowa area that I was in, there's multiple access locations. Some are down in the Valley, some are up on the hilltops. And so there's really no place that is impossible or, or really all that tough to get to if you're able to put on, you know, X number of miles and not, you know, necessarily opposed to climbing hills or dropping down into valleys. There were some bluffs, uh, but really it wasn't ultra steep. There was not, not as many vertical bluffs as there were just kind of general steep hill features uh, in general. So in preparation on my e-scouting, I took any individual piece of public land and just marked where all the access points were going to be. And then tried to kind of extrapolate where that hunting pressure would stem out to. If there was say, for instance, a visible uh, access trail or logging road stemming from the access parking lot, then of course I would kind of use that as a general line and kind of spread out uh, directions on either side of that, knowing that 
oftentimes during firearm seasons, it seems like guys will stick to those roads for the most part and then just deviate a little bit. So they're, it's pretty easy for them to get back to that main access trail and get back to the vehicle. And it still makes them feel like they're, you know, hunting their own little spot, so to speak. So from that perspective, I went through and just marked, okay, here's all the expected pressure from those types of locations. And then secondarily looked at any of the road systems. I don't know how common it is down in Iowa, but you know, certainly in the States, I usually hunt for firearms. It seems like you get 90% or maybe 80% of the people that park in your parking lots. And there's still a few people every now and then that'll just park on the side of the road and access through, you know, sort of a, I don't know if you want to call it an overlooked or just less common access trail. So I marked all of the uh, road access locations where somebody could theoretically park. And that gave me another clue of, okay, pressure could be coming from these locations as well. And so from that, I was able to build a pretty good picture of where I expected deer to get pushed to, but there's still a huge wild card. And that is that around all of these public land boundaries, you have private land and you just don't know, and you can't possibly expect to know unless you go, you know, ahead of time and just go door to door and and figure this out. Who is going to be hunting on private land bordering the public? Are they going to be doing deer drives? Are they going to just be sitting in box blinds? What does that hunting pressure do to the private look like? Uh, Especially if it's a a type of area where it doesn't get hunted at all until say firearm season. And then, you know, everybody in the farmer's family comes out and hunts that opening weekend, which is pretty common, obviously in states like Wisconsin, you just can't know that information possibly. So I just kind of did the best that I could and just assumed that in general, around any of the borders, I could expect other pressure to be pushing deer toward more of the central locations of those uh, properties. So what I was really looking for is, is there locations kind of centrally within some of these public land properties that are really hard to get to for anybody that I maybe have to, you know, drop down into a drainage and then climb up the other side and then maybe go back down another drainage uh, and get into just some kind of nasty hole that's a little bit hard to get out of and would kind of deter a lot of people from wanting to even pack a deer out for one. Uh, but also just even getting to that location in general. That's really the primary focus was trying to look for low areas that are hard to get to and that look like there would also be, you know, hard to pack a deer out of. So fast forward to opening day, I drove to the particular area that I was going to hunt in, uh, parked on the side of the road and started my access, Uh, went down a ravine, up a ravine, and then dropped down into a second ravine where I was hoping to potentially get some of this deer movement from other pressure uh, pushing in. I wasn't paying too much attention to the wind. The wind prediction really was going to be light and variable. So you're talking less than a couple miles an hour, which in steep hill country basically means you can expect the thermals to outweigh whatever wind is there regardless. So knowing that there's going to be dropping thermals, at least for the first couple of hours, at least uh, potentially even longer on some of those Northern slopes, I had no issues with just diving right down in there uh, and getting to the kind of the thick of the action where I was hoping the deer were going to get moved to. Fast forward a couple of hours, uh, hadn't seen too much for deer movement right at kind of first light. There were some shots that I heard, but nothing on the public. Uh, Everything was kind of far away for what I did here. Uh, And also I was the first vehicle in that particular area. So I didn't really know at this point how much actual hunting pressure there was or wasn't. At about nine o'clock in the morning, if my memory serves me correctly, I finally had the first deer sightings. I had three does come in from behind me, uh, which was from kind of the, the direction of the closest private, right? So I was pretty deep in there from an access on public land perspective, uh, but 
private land is not too far away. So it's just kind of a wild card of whether or not there's going to be pressure from that direction or not. Had three does come in from that direction, uh, 30 yards probably. It could have shot any one of them pretty easily, but it would have taken me the entire rest of the day to get them back out to the vehicle. Uh, so I just kind of filmed them and, and watched them go. And they finally worked their way a little bit downwind to me, got a little wigged out and ran up to the top of the next point. And they covered 300 vertical feet in like 30 seconds, like goats. It was pretty wild uh, to watch how easily they went up that steep incline. And not a couple minutes after that, a couple of hunters walked in along the same path as the does. Um, you know, again, walked you know, probably 30, 35 yards away, uh, gave a little wave. And at this point, I, I pretty much know that they're coming from the private because you can't get to that direction from public access. They would have had to walk past me from the other direction if they were coming from public. And so a third guy came in and he started, you know, yelling. He saw my orange and asked if I was part of the deer drive. Uh, I said no. <laughs> and uh, I was kind of hoping that if there was going to be public pressure, and if there was going to be sort of a deer drive in that location, funneling deer out through this drainage and through this little thermal hub area, I would have expected that the most common thing that would have happened, the most likely thing would be that uh, some of those private land uh, hunters would have climbed up to the ridge top surrounding that thermal hub drainage type of an area and would have pushed down all those points to collect and push all the deer down into that drainage and kind of shoot them out the bottom toward the direction of the private. If they you know, were to do that, then effectively you would, you should in theory have a lot of deer moving through that potential area and all condensed into a very fine area where you got, you know, a couple standers sitting down in that, uh, little Creek bottom. But what actually happened was kind of the opposite. These guys were coming in from the direction of the private and they spread out on some of these points on one side of the drainage and worked their way up the points from the bottoms. And from the sounds of what they were yelling back and forth, it made it seem like on top was where they had their standers and another private field. So they were effectively pushing from the bottom up and trying to get some of that deer corral, that deer movement corralled, you know, from whatever points the deer were betting on and push them up to the flats on top. And then hopefully they, you know, get past whatever standards there are. So my plan kind of backfired on that opening morning spot. And, you know, it was really just due to something I couldn't have predicted and, I even, you know, had predicted that it could be potential deer drive activity. Not that uncommon to hear of guys saying that deer drives happen all the time in Iowa during the first shotgun season. It was just polar opposite of how I expected that they were going to do it. And as those guys were going up the hill, I couldn't see them all the time just because it was, you know, enough timber between me and them. It's big country. Uh, but I could hear them yelling back and forth. You know, they're holding their positions from a safety perspective. And, you know, you could hear them yelling back and forth. Oh, you know, five does over here, you know, X, Y over here. I only heard one gunshot as they were working up the hills that it sounded like a guy shot. Uh, but it sounded like there was a decent number of deer that they saw as they got, you know, pretty close to the top of those hills and, you know, continue to push them, you know, further up. And I didn't hear any other gunshots from who I'm assuming was probably at one of those upper field locations as in kind of a standing position. I didn't hear any gunshots. So from what I'm thinking, these guys were probably either holding out for bucks only, or, I mean, that, that's the only thing I can really think of. I'm sure they saw several does that they could have shot. And I'm sure that whoever was waiting on top probably saw plenty of those does go by. Um, so the one gunshot that I did hear, there wasn't a lot of commotion afterwards. So I don't know if the guy missed, uh, but it definitely didn't sound like there was guys collecting at the sight of a, a deer. Um, and they just kind of, it, it got quiet eventually. They never came back down. I sat there for another hour and a half about 
in the hopes that, you know, if there was a bigger buck that they did kick up, perhaps he slipped out uh, between the drivers and worked his way back down into the bottom. So I was holding out for that kind of a hope. And eventually, you know, it was just quiet and no additional deer seen. And at that point I decided it was, you know, time to switch up the strategy because the likelihood most likely of deer coming back down that drainage at that point, unless they're coming from a, a different direction was, was lower. What's kind of interesting and ironic is that from my access, if I would have stopped, you know, a half a mile short of where I would have accessed from and stayed up on top of that hill instead of dropping in, I probably would have seen a significantly, you know, higher number of deer than the three that I did see in that location. So with it being daylight at this point, I decided to relocate and, you know, from all of this e-scouting that I had done prior to the trip, I had multiple other locations like this sort of marked and, and pre-mapped out in case, you know, I needed a plan B, C, etc. So I walked out of the bottom of the drainage and all the while I'm, I'm checking for sign and just seeing kind of what's around because if I do want to say bow hunt a place like this in the future, it'd be good to know that type of thing, kind of treat it as, you know, scouting for future trips. But also it's just kind of looking for a big buck sign in general, just to get an idea of what the, the age class might be in that particular, you know, area of public land. And so I got up to the top and started working my way over to one of these directions, uh, jumped up a, a fork horn that yeah, maybe could have shot, um, just from how close he was, but would have been kind of a risky shot. I'm not, not huge on running, uh, shots of deer, even with a, a shotgun, I just don't practice it at all. So I just kept working this drainage over into plan B type of location. And as I got to pretty close within like a quarter mile of where I would potentially drop down into the next drainage, I could see there was a, a, a large amount of orange and what it looked like a vehicle. So I got my binos up and what it ended up being was there was a group of guys that, you know, the road, when you look at on X, you can kind of see it, but it's mostly just kind of a wooded road. Uh, running through the private that basically stops right at the edge of public. And what these guys had done is they basically driven up that little road on the private uh, through the woods and parked right on the edge of public and basically set up a, you know, a makeshift deer camp right there. Uh, and there's probably, I don't know, five, six guys standing there in their orange at, you know, 10 in the morning. Um, so that basically told me, you know, if these guys aren't out in the woods actively right now, they probably were first thing in the morning. And so whatever deer movement was going to happen in that area probably has already happened. I've already missed out on it. Best I can do is drop down into some of those, you know, local bedding areas around there, those thick areas and, and try and still hunt and see if I could potentially get a shot at a deer that's already been, you know, pushed around and harassed at that point in the day. And that was kind of the last particular spot in that chunk of public. So I decided then to back out again, looking for sign on the way back and hit up a different area of public. And I was also curious to see just kind of in general hunting pressure terms, how much pressure these things were getting these areas. So I made it back to the truck and to my surprise, all of the public parking lots at that point in the day, again, it's around midday at this point had either zero or one vehicles in the parking lots respectively, which is odd, right? In Minnesota, you might have eight, 10 at that time of the day during opening of firearms, you know, similar thing, if not more in Wisconsin. And so I started to be able to piece this picture that at least on these areas of public land, the, the public land pressure is very low. And most of the pressure in, in terms of what that land is seeing is likely coming from 
the, the private land surrounding, not necessarily from those main access trails. Also, in some of the instances, you could see from where the vehicle was parked, orange from just me driving on the road, knowing that the, the guys in those particular spots weren't going very far in. I drove to area two. Again, this one only had one vehicle in the parking lot. So I got out and worked my way into this, you know, real thick kind of creek bottom area uh, toward the edge of the property that I was hoping might be a place where deer could be congregated at that time during the day that, you know, maybe they've already been pushed and harassed that morning and they would have worked their way into this type of an area to seek cover. So that was where I was moving my way into. And on the way, you know, this, this place has got, it's just really good looking habitat, lots of hills, oak trees. Uh, there's even some uh, agriculture on the public itself, some like, you know, standing corn and, and stuff like that. There is definitely some hunter sign from what looked like bow hunting, you know, scent wicks and things like that, that he could see in, in certain areas, but it didn't seem like the hunting pressure, at least at that specific, you know, time of the day was very high. And this place is, is quite large. Walked my way into that area again, saw a good amount of deer sign, but the ground is frozen. So it's tough to tell exactly how fresh a lot of this deer sign is. It's kind of locked in time from whenever that mud was, you know, soft enough to be, to be able to leave a track. And then it just kind of gets locked there. Did see some tree stands back there as well, which I had thought that it was not legal to leave tree stands in Iowa, but I, I could be wrong on that uh, on some of those uh, wildlife management areas. Got set up in a place that had a lot of good low-lying, you know, grasses and brush and just kind of thicker cover in general, not just your sort of mature hardwood forest uh, in this creek bottom type of an area. Deer tracks all over the place, lots of um, droppings in that particular area as well, scrapes. And of course, I'm not expecting the scrapes to be, you know, hit this time of the year. Of course, uh, it is getting pretty close to the, the peak of the second rut uh, during that time too. So that was in the back of my mind also that in probably, you know, three days from that time was kind of your peak secondary breeding bell curve. And despite being in what seemed like a pretty good spot, for that second time of the day and getting in there, what I thought was pretty quietly. I didn't jump any deer, uh, nor did I see any deer for the rest of the night. However, I did hear one particular gunshot and on, it was close to the, what sounded like close to where I had, you know, accessed from. And on the way back, uh, to the truck at night did see one got piled about 200 yards from the parking lot. Um, would appear to be most likely a fawn just based on the, the size of the gut pile. Fast forward to the second day, by this time I'm starting to piece together that the, the public land pressure is probably not as extreme as what I was hoping for or expecting. And so that probably meant that in some of these areas that I just, that looked good, but I just totally marked off because I assumed that there was going to be you know too much hunter pressure uh, for them to be good or that, you know, other people would be in there. I started to relook at some of those spots again and say, well, you know, maybe these would still be potentially good spots to collect some of this deer movement. It's pretty clear just based on the amount of sign in these woods that the deer population is fairly strong. So for day two, I decided to get again into one of these, you know, thermal hub drainage type of an areas. Again, very little wind. So you got dropping thermals as kind of the, the primary air movement during that morning. And what I wanted this particular spot to be is basically just a spot where it was a long, easy access for me. But once you climb out of that drainage and get to some of those hilltops, you got agriculture and roads and additional parking lots and things like that. So 
if the hunting pressure was going to be similar to what I observed on the, the first day where some of those guys that are hunting in the public are not necessarily going in that far. They're just kind of sitting in one spot. They, then maybe that spot that I otherwise overlooked could still be good. And I might be getting some guys that are just kind of, you know, meandering in off those public land accesses or the road and kicking deer down off those points into that drainage during the first light activity period. So I got in there, made that nice long access, got what would seem like a pretty good setup, had lots of points dropping in that could all, you know, potentially funnel deer movement down. And about 9am again, just hadn't seen a deer by that point was, was kind of surprised, uh, before first light had heard one deer blow, uh, quite a way up the, on, on top of the hill. Um, that I, I'm sure wasn't from me that could have been another hunter or, you know, coyote or whatever else, but hadn't seen anything at 9am. And I'm thinking, well, this is odd. I, I should have seen deer by now if what I had planned was actually going to you know come to fruition. So I thought about just moving and just, you know, kind of slowly working my way a little bit further up this drainage, just to see if there was additional deer sign, uh, even like past rut sign, just kind of get an idea for the, the deer numbers and how they were using this potential hub area. And I got up and started moving and hadn't gone a hundred yards and crusted a little bit of a knob in that bottom, in that Creek uh, drainage type area. I could see orange. So what, uh, had ended up happening was there was a guy who was basically trying to do the same thing. I think that I was trying to do, but he must've accessed from the top. Cause I was the only vehicle from the access that I had come in from the bottom. So he must've accessed from the top, came down into that drainage to set up in the thermal hub. In doing so, he likely had already uh, pushed out any deer that were on those hilltops. So, at least on that particular point that he came down on. So, I, from my perspective, it was a bit backwards. Uh, not what I would have expected. Not what I would have, I guess, done personally from an access. But it definitely appeared to have somewhat of an influence on uh, the deer movement or lack of deer movement that I saw that morning. So, at that point, knowing that he was right in that same drainage as well... I decided to pick a different spot because uh, he had a little bit, any deer that would have additionally gotten pushed down into that area would have came past him before they came past me. So back out to, you know, spot C type of a thing. I started walking back out that way. I came in, ended up seeing uh, an additional deer that was running through the woods uh, that two more guys had kicked out on sort of the main hunter access trail. And then as I was working my way back to the vehicle on that main access trail, I did see two additional guys. One of them was, it looked like he was just kind of standing at the, the corner of a, a grass field. And then the other one was in a ladder stand, literally right on top of the main hunter access trail. Um, so I just walked past him, waved, <laughs> he waved back at me, you know, 15 yards away. And, uh, I continued to work back to, to figure out what I was going to do for the rest of the day. So at this point, I'm kind of perplexed as to what to do next, because the public land pressure is not what I was hoping for. I was hoping for much, I was hoping for a lot more hunters and I was hoping that they would be more mobile than they were. I was hoping that they would be able to move around and kick some of these deer around. But everybody that I'd seen to this point who was actually hunting on the public land was treating it more kind of like a late muzzleloader season hunt than what I would typically expect during an opening of firearms. Usually, especially around, you know, kind of midday, late in the afternoon, it seems like you get guys that, at least what I'm used to, they'll just kind of meander through the woods and they're walking a little bit too fast for still hunting. And, you know, they're not going to get generally shots at deer that they kick up. 
uh, but they're walking not fast enough to just kind of cover ground from A to B. They're just kind of in that odd, you know, walk around and hope to jump shoot a deer type of mentality. We get a lot of that. And so I was hoping to see more of it in order to get just kind of general deer movement pushing past some of these key areas. But that wasn't what appeared to be happening on the, the public land at all. You know, most of the guys, and I did not hear many gunshots really at all throughout this entire opening weekend on the public. I think a lot of guys were set up such that they were just hoping for sort of natural deer movement, which wasn't helping my plan at all. It became clear, I think at this point that a greater amount of hunting pressure that could move deer around was likely to happen on the private land surrounding the public, as opposed to the guys actually parking on and hunting the public itself. So again, I expanded kind of my looking at the map to try and see what was potentially available. And again, it's, it's tough to pinpoint for sure, because there's lots of potential places where that could happen. There's lots of places where you could get, you know, deer drives happening. Lots of places where guys could be accessing or trying to access the public from their private and pushing deer down in, but it's like you got the entire perimeter and there's no way to really know for sure which ones are going to be sort of the key areas where that could happen. Uh, and, and also at least generally, it seems like a lot of deer drives can happen in the morning. You know, guys will wake up and eight or 9 AM, go out and do their deer drive and then come back for lunch. And so it's really just another unknown. Are there going to be additional deer drive type of activities nearby or have most people kind of done what they're going to do for that day? And they're, they're sort of hanging it up and, you know, taking care of whatever deer they shot that morning. And again, I hadn't heard really a large number of gunshots uh, by that point in the day. Option two was just to say, forget the pressure and just act like you're, you're trying to hunt it for normal deer activity. Act as if you were bow hunting this and it was a bow hunting season and you just were trying to hunt early December. Where would you hunt? How would you hunt? And normally for that, especially that time of year, I'd be focused on probably one of two things. One, very heavy cover. That's also just kind of based on the fact that by that time of the year, all the leaves are down and we've generally already had gun seasons, which isn't necessarily the case in Iowa, but heavy cover. Uh, low-lying cover, grasses, brush, things like that, that are hard to see through. And then also the potential opportunity for some kind of second rut activity. And just kind of looked at areas like that. There was a couple good ones on the map, seemingly. Uh, for example, like a, a ridge that 90% of the people, public and private, are probably not hunting. And that you might have deer that just kind of bed up there throughout the day. That was a potential spot that I really thought about climbing up into before first light. Uh, but certainly at this time of the day, trying to climb up there would put me at a huge disadvantage because any deer that was bedded up there would be able to see me coming. The other option was overlook Creek drainage type areas. And there was a good one that seemed like it could potentially be overlooked, uh, not too far away from one of the parking areas where a large number of the people are probably getting funneled out one direction based on how the access trail is set up. And on the backside of it, you got this thicker cover area that's less appealing to walk through a little bit thicker and also has some good, you know, hills and cover and stuff behind it. So I decided to head out there and in walking through that Creek drainage type area did see quite a number of rubs, quite a lot of just general deer sign and, and trails pounded down through the grass. Uh, didn't kick anything out of that specific location, uh, but then worked my way out of it into another drainage ridge system that could potentially be less hunted if that direction was, as I thought, you know, overlooked. 
and it was adjacent to private also that could have good deer movement. What I could see also is that this, uh, one area private through my binoculars, um, you could see a small food plot that was kind of tucked in into the, the trees a little bit that you couldn't really, really even see from aerial photos. Cause it was small enough that you just, it just kind of blended in unless you really were looking for it. And in this little area, we had a low bench and that low bench on the hillside had several scrapes on it. It also had trails that were beaten down into the dirt tracks that were frozen into the mud. And so this low bench is basically right in between some of that low, thick cover in the Creek drainage type area. And of course, uh, some of the, the, the cover a little bit higher up on the hill where deer could also be bedding. There's potential access from the top of the hill. So guys up there could be pushing deer down the point and into that thick cover from the bottom. In addition, there could be deer movement coming from, you know, any of that public drainage area to try and get closer to where that, that food plot is. Uh, and in fact, there's, there's a lot of potential travel through that low bench area. Wind wasn't, you know, until you get to the last hours of light ideal from a thermal dropping perspective, but the, the general wind direction was still blowing in a pretty good direction. So I decided to set up in a, a tree on that low bench area and just sit it out and right at about an hour before dark, I uh, had one guy come through at about 70 yards away, just drop right through that kind of same area that I had access through and, and worked his way up into the drainage, uh, just kind of walking through there. So obviously uh, an overlook spot is over only overlooked as long as it isn't getting hunted. And in that case, it became apparent that, you know, I wasn't the, the first person to have that idea. Uh, and so had to decide whether or not to stick it out for that last hour or try and still hunt, say through one of those Creek bottom type areas, uh, ended up deciding to try and stick it out just in case, you know, again, some of that additional hunter movement for the last couple hours of light or just natural deer movement that was apart from what that guy was, uh, was going to be able to produce, uh, could give me an opportunity and ended up not seeing anything for that uh, night as well. So now we can move into the recap here. What I learned on this particular hunt Again, it was only two days and my expectations weren't super high, but I wanted to take this opportunity again to get boots on the ground, learn as much as I can and see if it was something I wanted to do again in the future, or if I wanted to start saving points up and doing the occasional bow hunt instead. And definitely what it seemed like is that most of the public land hunting pressure that was from public land hunters was overall low hunter density compared to a lot of the other places I've gone hunted in and in general, very little moving around from what I saw. Uh, not too many guys did I see in areas that were ultra hard to access, but there were certainly some hunter sign in areas that were kind of deep back there. Some of it might be from bow hunters too. And most of the like large amount of deer moving type pressure that I saw was, uh, from surrounding private lands. So I, I think it's one of those cases where if you did enough opening days worth of learning, and you did enough scouting, you could very easily, I think, find areas where you might be in a position to see, you know, 20, 30 deer on an opening morning type of thing. If you can find the right area and the, the right pressure, uh, I obviously didn't find that in the two days that I was here, but it, it's tough to, because of the unknown nature of where the pressure is going to come from. And that also being one of the biggest factors, it's tough to get that. I think without additional either experience or just kind of outside information of knowing who's going to do what on opening day. For example, if I went back into the area that I hunted on opening morning next year, 
and hunted on top of the hill instead of the bottom, likely I could see, you know, a higher number of deer. Uh, granted, I don't know what the, you know, big buck potential would be in that particular spot. I didn't see any of the deer that they pushed through. What I do know is that they didn't end up shooting a whole lot out of that. And if they were after bucks, it would seem to be low likelihood. I also know that in that general area that I hunted and, you know, as I was walking around looking for sign, I did not find a lot of what I would consider big buck sign or sign that would indicate that there's a larger number of mature bucks in a particular area, uh, or that there's just kind of a really good age class really in, in all the areas that I scouted, I honestly felt like there wasn't the type of deer sign that I couldn't have also found just hunting in like Southeast Minnesota. So obviously between those two States, one is way cheaper of a firearm tag than the other. Uh, the other one is set up so that the gun seasons are less advantageous from deer survival standpoint, you know, Southeast Minnesota has similar habitat type, uh, but also has gun seasons that go essentially from the beginning of the rut all the way through till, you know, early to mid December. And I think there might even be additional antler sunsets that are firearms as well. Uh, multiple buck tags given out. So like in general, it's a lot lower likelihood that a deer makes it to an older age than what you would assume the case to be in Iowa. Uh, but just from what I saw in those couple of days, I didn't really see any, you know, mind blowing type of big buck sign. So that's something too, where if I was going to go back down there, I would want to for sure do a scouting trip, uh, first primarily to find areas that seem to have a little bit more mature, uh, buck sign in general. And then from that figure out areas that are just kind of highest odds and, and start to, to focus in and key in on those, uh, specific pinch points and, and areas where the deer might get pushed through, uh, find where the cover is and, and sort of build from that. You know, if you're hunting a particular area, I feel like where there's, it's pretty average, even like from Iowa standard kind of average, then the chances of seeing, you know, a big buck down there, which of course is every non-resident hunters, you know, primary objective for going to Iowa, other than just, you know, having lower hunter densities. Um, I feel like your odds are still probably not that great in just kind of that general area. But if you find an area that seems to have good sign, uh, seems to have a high number of, um, you know, a little bit older age class animals, and obviously you're just increasing your odds. So likely what I will do regardless is, uh, I will, you know, do as much boots on the ground scouting as I can, you know, year in and year out, both in the States that I continue to hunt as well as Iowa, and then, uh, continue to apply for, for points and things like that. And then determine based on what I find, does it make more sense to start doing, you know, a shotgun hunt once a year, uh, that doesn't interfere with any of my other hunts, kind of like what I did this year, or does it make more sense to uh, start to just, you know, bow hunt every X number of years that I can draw a tag. So that's a TBD. I'm not necessarily opposed to doing a shotgun hunt again. I think it's, it's just going to take time like anything um, to try and figure out what really is the, the best pattern, best area and figure out exactly how the hunting pressure is exactly working in, in all those particular scenarios, which is just something you can't, you can't get only from looking at e-scouting and, and aerial maps. Also, I had mentioned I was going to talk about the, the clothing side of things. So because this was a hunt where I knew I was going to be potentially climbing some pretty, you know, tall, steep hills could potentially be doing some longer accesses and that from a quietness perspective, it wasn't going to be as critical as it would be bow hunting. What I chose to do is for all of my insulation on this hunt, I just took in puffy layers, uh, whether it was, you know, 
puffy pants, puffy jacket, down jacket, instead of using things like the fanatic jacket or, or, you know, layers like that, where they're a little bit quieter, a little bit more, say bow hunting friendly, a little bit more protective, but also, you know, two to three times the weight in bulk. And in certain aspects, it, it worked fine, right? It, the, I was able to pack all of my layers within my pack. I didn't have to have anything externally, you know, kind of strapped to it or attached to it or sitting in the load shelf. So that was nice from that aspect. What I wasn't a huge fan of from the noise perspective was that with some of the puffy jackets in particular, the, the down puffy, the, the Chamberlain, it, it would probably work really well for what it's intended for being, you know, kind of Western glassing in colder, you know, late October, uh, November type of hunts. But what I found was that in that real cold, quiet, calm air, just the act of me kind of swimming my head around to look one direction or the other, there'd be just enough movement of the fabric itself and, you know, beard whiskers rubbing against the fabric that it became really hard to hear. And I would have to like turn my head one direction and just pause and just listen, turn my head a little bit more, pause and listen, uh, to try and really, you know, pick up as much hearing wise as I could. I felt like if I was just kind of generally moving my head around, my hearing was impaired a lot more than it would be on just kind of a normal uh, jacket. Having some sort of a quieter shell, like a soft shell or like a fleece jacket over the top certainly would help. And that's what I would, you know, typically do if I was going to try and use that garment for uh, a bow hunt. Uh, But I chose not to do that for this hunt just because it was, you know, extra layers I would have had to pack in when I wouldn't have necessarily needed it because the winds weren't going to be high. Uh, So I wouldn't have had to worry about, uh, say, blocking the wind on those type of a garment. Also for the, the down puffy in particular, what makes it so good about packability is the fact that down is really high loft and extremely compressible, but that also hurts you from a warmth perspective. If number one, you're in strong winds. And if number two, you're in situations where that down is going to get, get compressed. So let's say for example, you're hunting in a tree stand and you put that, a down jacket on and you lean back against the tree. Well, just like with a sleeping bag, that down that's underneath you, or in this case, between you and the tree gets compressed enough to where a lot of that loft is removed. And a lot of that potential warmth that the down could be providing is sort of eliminated. Uh, contrast that with something like, uh, you know, a Berber fleece where it's not really going to compress as much. If you apply pressure to that, it's still going to be roughly as warm uh, as it would have been non-compressed. Um, you know, slight difference between the conductive heat loss of, you know, being against a tree versus just being against air. But I mean, in general, you're not losing as much loft there. And when you're saddle hunting, a couple of the areas where you could lose loft potentially would be if you're leaning forward against your bridge, that insulation gets compressed a little bit. If you have a recliner strap and you're leaning back into it for comfort, that's compressing that insulation against your back uh, for that at least little strip of, of distance. And if you have a, a puffy lower garment layer and you are kneeling against the tree, then of course your knees, the insulation is going to be compressed. Really where it works the best is, like I said, how it's intended and designed to be used, which is in a case like if you're glassing out west and you are sitting on an open hillside, you're not leaning against anything, and that down is able to really you know, be expanded to its, its full extent. And the only thing that's really going to compress it at that point is a strong wind. And so a lot of guys will wear those real light packable rain shells that in and of themselves aren't very heavy garments. So they don't compress the down it, um, themselves and you still get that loft underneath those type of layers, uh, but not ideal from a, a tree perspective. So I know I've kind of gone back and forth in terms of from a packability perspective, is it worth it to try and pack in the puffies 
uh, versus uh, trying to just use your more typical whitetail garments and just, you know, sort of bite the bullet with carrying the extra weight in bulk. And I've gotten to the point now where, especially if I'm bow hunting, less less critical for gun hunting, but if I'm bow hunting, especially I've gotten to the point where at least for some of those layers, I'm definitely starting to lean more towards just packing in the key, you know, garments that I'm going to be utilizing on the external layers and not worrying as much about how heavy they are or how packable they are. Of course, there's going to be some examples or or situations where I'm still going to want to use the lighter stuff, but only in times where it's minimal detriment. For example, uh, in comparing uh, a bib like the Fanatic bib versus the Incinerator bib, noise difference between the two is fairly minimal. They're both fairly quiet, but the Fanatic is like ultra quiet, uh, but also doesn't pack down nearly as nicely as the Incinerator is. And so from that perspective, I'm not as worried about, you know, leg noise when I'm moving around up in the tree, cause you're really not moving your legs typically that much. Incinerator makes a lot more sense. Uh, jacket wise from an insulation standpoint, anything that's on my body as I'm walking in, I like to be, you know, less compressible type of layers. So things like wool layers, things like, uh, fleece layers, but then as you start to transition into layers that are going to be packed in, that's where the trade-offs start to, you know, really come into play. And so I could still see myself for sure using puffier garments as kind of the mid layer, uh, but actually more leaning towards now just those synthetic active type, uh, puffy layers, as opposed to just kind of a, a high loft down layer. What seems to happen if I have an external layer, that's something like uh, a big heavy parka, like a fanatic jacket or like a sanctuary jacket or, or something along those lines. If I have a really high quality down, nice puffy packable insulation. It's really nice to, to pack in and, you know, I can scrunch that thing down into the size of a softball. But when you put that big heavy jacket over the top, a lot of that loft just gets compressed and it's not giving you the amount of warmth that you otherwise could be getting and packing in additional like Berber fleece layers or something like that on top of a jacket, you know, it's kind of a mid layer. Then, then you're kind of overboard on bulk. But if you kind of go middle of the road and you have one of those more active synthetic puffy type of jackets where they're, they're still going to compress down, but maybe not quite as much as say like a high loft downwood. It feels like that still gives you number one, kind of a good compromise. Uh, number two, not as many issues with worrying about it, you know, getting wet or soaked or anything like that. And also just kind of the face fabrics for those as a mid layer, as opposed to something like an additional fleece garment is generally going to um, move and jive a little bit well with the other fabric surfaces. So you're not going to have as much internal friction between your mid layers and you, either your base layers or your, your jacket layers. So you're going to have overall, I think a little bit more unencumbered movement from, especially a bow hunting perspective. That's really going to matter. So that's kind of where I'm sitting right now on the, uh, the packable garments, um, rather just work out a little bit more and carry the extra, you know, two or three pounds, um, and just live with the extra bulk on that pack in. Uh, to have a little bit better sitting experience once I'm in the woods, especially if it's an all day type of a hunt. So hope that was helpful, informative, especially if you had been yourself considering if a a first shotgun hunt or any other type of a gun hunt as a non-resident in Iowa makes sense. If you guys live in Iowa or have done that type of a hunt, you know, in the past, then I would definitely be open to, you know, hearing some input, you know, sharing notes, things like that in case it's, you know, something that I do want to end up doing in the future again. I'd love to 
you know, pick anybody else's brain and, and learn as much as I can. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.